Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the first part of a new podcast called Mirths and Monsters. This is a less than serious look at some of the creepy legends you may be familiar with, but with some facts you may not have heard before. I'm your host, CK. How do you do? Some call me a bit weird. Some say I was released too early. All I can say is that I see things in a way that others don't, can't, or won't. With me as always is my wee man Finn. Say hello Finn. Good boy. He travels with me on these adventures. He's my companion, my friend, but he's no guard dog. A Cornish pixie once sneezed close by and Finn jumped up so high as if someone had shouted, This way to the defenceless kittens! The reason I'm doing this podcast is to share with you adventures we've had all over the British Isles and beyond. Hopefully entertaining you along the way. Now, a lot of the knowledge that I'll be bringing to your ear devices may sound unbelievable, but I'll mention a quote that is attributed to scientist Niels Bohr about the luck of the horseshoe that he had on his cabin wall. What he said, in a Danish accent, was, of course I don't believe it, but sometimes I've noticed that it works even when you don't believe it. Uh, Sven. So, with that in your wonderfully sexy open minds, join me on this journey and let's have ourselves some fun and learn some luck of the horseshoe knowledge. You can join me, not a problem, but you'll need your own transport, because there's only room for me on the bike and Finn in the sidecar. This first episode is all about the haggis. Okay, my lads and lassies, let's have some haggis-related history on the animal itself, and the importance that it has in Scotland. First thing I'll mention is that on the 25th of January every year, there's something called Burns Night. Now, this is not to do with faulty matches. It's actually named after the poet Robert Burns. One of the best things to come out of Scotland, and I do include the base City Rollers in that. You could do a lot worse than to check out his work. And also theirs. Now, Burns Night is named after him due to his poem, Ode to the Haggis. The opening lines of which are as follows. Fair fire honest sonsy face. Great chieftain o' the pudding race. This translated for non-Scottish speakers, or for that matter non-English speakers, means it's good to see your honest and chubby face, great chieftain of the sausage race. Still not with me? Can't blame you, but let me explain. Basically, the haggis is a much beloved part of Scottish history, highly respected to the extent that it shares an annual celebration with Robert Burns. The way that we Scots show our love for such things is to kill and eat them. The haggis, not Burns. He died of natural causes. Luckily, with the advancement of humanity, the Scots' old attitude towards such a beast as the haggis has changed over time. Other attitudes that have softened are thinking that all foods need to be fried in lard and or oil, that having one pint of lager at a time does not make you a bit of a whoopsie, But the biggest one is the concept that the inhabitants of England are actually people too. 
Only kidding. Scottish people still munch on deep-fried twixes, have a pint of lager in each hand so they don't appear effeminate, while shouting, ANYONE BUT ENGLAND! when any sports game is on the telly. Doesn't matter who's playing. I digress. Back to the haggis. These days, the haggis is hunted only during the appropriate season, and any time that a haggis has been found to be hunted out with that time results in a very stiff punishment. The offender will have all shortbread privileges removed from anywhere between one to five years. Now, shortbread is used as currency on the black market by poachers and other ne'er-do-wells. This is a stiff punishment indeed. I'm not a hunter myself. I merely study animals of all varieties, and it was on one dreich night. Dreich, by the way, means very wet. Your own colloquial example may be raining cats and dogs, or I think my shorter-legged pets may have to learn how to swim. It was on such a night that Finn and I ventured out into the bracken-strewn, thistle-heavy hillsides of Scotland to do some camping and tried to see, for ourselves, a haggis in their natural habitat, the hills of the highlands. So, you join me and the wee man at our campsite, a site that's far enough away from a potential haggis habitat so as not to disturb them, but not so far that our time will be wasted. I've been given a tip from an old friend of mine that there is a haggis habitat on a secluded hill around two miles south of where we are. The name of the hill is the Rainy Corbett. Okay, let me give you some information about the sizes of hills and mountains in Scotland, just for scale. So, peaks that are over a thousand metres are known as Munros, but this isn't the choice of home for the haggis. They are more likely to be found in a Corbett. Corbett's are hills that are between the heights of 762 and 914 metres, which is incredibly specific. Anyway, think of two Empire State Buildings atop of one another, and that's the sort of height we're dealing with. Obviously, a Corbett has more of a gradual incline than the Empire State, and an elevator is not required for the haggis. However, this does lead me to the haggis itself and its description. The haggis, to put it nicely, is an unusual looking creature. To put it not so nicely, it's a face that even a mother would run from. Potentially slap. It ranges between 4 and 5 feet in height. It has a long, thin neck, similar to that of an ostrich. The difference being that the neck can lengthen and shorten when required. This is used for safety purposes, as the haggis has always been prey and never predator. If on alert, it will hide behind shrubs or rocks and use the accordion-style neck to pop out and back in the blink of one of their two pie-sized eyes. Their head is about the size of a fully-grown Labrador's, but with a snout pushed in. This also gives you an idea of just how strong their neck muscles are. The body of the haggis is the only part of the creature that has some fleshiness. To quote my late Uncle Rod, whose accent I will now try and do. (laughs) Picture, if you will, a meaty sphere, one that has been sat on and slightly squished by a small yet weighty child. Then you have the shape of the haggis middle. Join us in the haggis zone. Now here is the most interesting part of the haggis. 
its legs. It has four legs. Pretty standard, I hear you say, and I agree. However, the two outer legs are longer than the two inner legs. Does that sound crazy, Finn? I don't know how he does that. All of the parts of the haggis are covered in short, coarse hair that helps it blend in with its surroundings and keeps it safe from predators, especially the ones overhead. Flying threats such as hawks, golden eagles and those big hairy things from the Flash Gordon remake are a minimal but common enough threat that the haggis needs this strong camouflage. However, let's get back to these legs. Evolution is a great thing. It helps hummingbirds hover while they feed from flowers. It helps bees fly when God only knows how they do. But who would have thought that the evolutionary step that was best for the haggis to survive on a hillside was to give it unparalleled legs? Shorter legs, certainly. Maybe just two legs. That would make sense. But no. What we have is a wonky-legged animal. It is for this reason that the haggis never falls down a hill, but, of course, it can only go in one direction. Now, as the diet of the haggis is the grass and greenery that it lives on, this isn't so much of a problem, but the main issue comes during mating season. You see the male has the long legs on the left side of its body, and the females have them on the right. This may sound ideal, but this means that the male always go one way, let's say clockwise, and the female always goes the opposite way, anti-clockwise. They pass each other on a day-to-day basis, saying hello and catching up with each other, and all is well with the haggis world. It's only when it comes to... how do I put this delicately? Rumpy-pumpy, that things get awkward. In an ideal world, both male and female would be going in the same direction. Male would catch up, the female would slow down, and then, romantically, they would try and latch on like one of the minis trying to get on the 18-wheeler near the end of the Italian job. All would move on, and a few months later, baby haggis comes along. However, because of the opposite direction issue, it basically boils down to, and I won't go into too much detail, it boils down to balance and the use of a big rock that helps with purchase. If Sir David Attenborough were to cover it, the ratings would be sky high. But apparently, penguins are much cuter. Anyway, there are two main reasons that the haggis is so sought after. One is that it just tastes so damn delicious. I admit that it isn't everyone's taste because the idea of eating the offal of an animal which has been cooked inside its own stomach is apparently disgusting. To them, I say nonsense. I shall continue to eat haggis for as long as some people will continue to eat Vegemite or cheese in a can. I'm looking at you, Australia and America. The idea that haggis is one of the most disgusting foods in existence started a while ago. You will of course not be surprised to discover that it was the haggis themselves who started the rumour. They would put on disguises and go into towns, wearing a long brown Macintosh coat, a large floppy hat, and of course two of them, one male and one female, would have to walk side by side to stay upright. It wasn't easy, but all they had to do was go into one of the many pubs you would find in a Scottish town or village, 
at a time when everyone was getting to that stage of drunkenness when anything can be believed. This would be around lunchtime. Obviously, haggis cannot speak the English language, but they have managed to learn the language of the drunk. They simply they gibble and they gobble and they splutter till their message gets across. The other reason that the haggis is so sought after is because its body, neck and two of the legs are used for bagpipes. That's right, the keening, wailing call that used to lead our armies to the battlefield and are now seen as a musical instrument comes from the haggis. In fact, when a haggis gets shot, the noise that it makes as it expires is actually the chord that the bagpipe will be, which explains the caterwauling sadness of the instrument. If you have seen a set of bagpipes, you'll see they don't look like much of an animal, but just listen to it. Does that not sound like the death call of some beast? Mm. The other two legs of the haggis are used for that other Scottish pastime. Violence. Uh, no, uh, golf. It's used for golf. Golf. The legs of a haggis are of course incredibly strong, as they have to be on them pretty much all of the time. The few occasions that haggis will sit down means that when they have to get back up, it's akin to that of a turtle trying to sort itself out after trying to do some breakdancing. However, their legs are the second hardest thing known in the natural world. The only thing harder is the skeletal frame of Wolverine, and you can't even get a tune out of him. As I have mentioned already, the hunting of haggis has been massively curtailed thanks to the season being created, and it has been working. However, there are still lowlifes who are hired by rich people who only want the actual original property, even though you can get perfectly acceptable vegan-friendly bagpipes, and you can even get vegetarian haggis these days, but be prepared to clear a room after you've had one. I think I've given you enough history and information about the haggis so let's see how me and Wee Man get on trying to see one. As we lay here, looking through binoculars, I can see out the corner of my eye that Finn is not a happy dog. He hates the rain. Even with his hat and coat on, he'd rather be indoors. I won't keep him out too long though, because I believe I've seen some movement through the glasses. Yes. I can see the tall and distinctive figure of the haggis in the still gloomy morning. It seems to be sauntering, just lazily walking, almost strutting around the hill. And is it making a noise? I think I can hear the call of the haggis. Okay, the okay, the Finn is perked okay, up and is listening intently. Luckily, I have let him listen to this noise through recording so as not to freak him out. He's a good boy, and he's a handsome boy, just like his friend Geo. We lay as the haggis wails his lament into the grim yet beautiful Scottish sky, and after a wee while he sets off around the hill again, and we head back to the tent. So there you have it, my tale of the haggis and its history. After we got home from that evening and after we dried off, we slept for a good 14 hours. 
We gave ourselves right good treats in the morning, some good food for him, some dolly mixtures for me. It can be really tiring chasing legends, you know. Till next time, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope to speak to you next week on the next episode of Mirths and Monsters. Till then, slant you. Your health.